1: Hello and welcome. Uh, This is Colin. uh, And today on the show, well, in the second half of the show, we will talk for the, I don't know, 87th time to Ross Garber, the attorney in America, at least the most has the most hands on experience, if that's the right word, with impeachment uh, and has become an astute commentator on impeachments that he is not personally litigating. Obviously, he's an expert on the ones that he has personally litigated. Uh, and we'll talk with him, among other things, about, and, and it'll, it'll sort of dovetail with the conversation we're about to have, but we'll talk about the withdrawal of five of President Trump's former impeachment lawyers um, and how one of the deal breakers appears to have been President, former President Trump's insistence that part of the defense, maybe the centerpiece of the defense, be the so-called big lie, which is that he won the election and was cheated out of it. Um, And it turns out there are certain things that some attorneys won't do. Anyway, a lot more to say about that. Uh, Obviously, uh, President Trump, uh, what does he got left? You know, I mean, he wants to kind of repeat that whole story. So, you know, the other the way that it dovetails with the beginning of, uh, of this is a conversation about journalism, because in journalism right now, we're struggling, too. Um, The normal way that we covered journalism as uh, covered politics, rather, as a series of institutions uh, that could be understood as institutions seems to be breaking down a bit, especially as regards the Republican Party. I mean, it just isn't really clear anymore that you that you could say with some confidence that the Republican Party fully affirms uh, the results of the 2020 election. Uh, and that the Republican Party is prepared uh, to push back at people, high-ranking people within uh, its own ranks, who say things that are grotesquely untrue, whether about the election or school shootings or whatever. So anyway, to help us uh, talk about that uh, is Eric Bollert, a media critic and uh, founder and editor of Pressrun, uh, m- dot Media. Uh, I get his PressRun newsletter in my mailbox. I recommend that you do it, too. Uh, He has been a senior fellow at Media Matters for America, a media critic at Daily Kos, or Kos, I forget which one it is now, it's been so long, Uh, a staff writer at Rolling Stone. He's the author of three books, including Lapdogs, How the Press Rolled Over for Bush. Uh, And uh, first of all, Eric Bullard, welcome to the show. I understand you're a little bit of a home stater here in Connecticut.
2: Thanks for having me. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Guilford many years ago. All right, well, I was there for a long time.
1: Well, you know, I mean, be true to your school. What can I say? As, as the as the Beach Boys said. Um so um yeah, I, well I, maybe a good place to begin is just a a clip from over the weekend on ABC's this week uh Asa Hutchinson, Republican Governor of Arkansas uh, was yeah. responding to a question from Martha Raddatz uh, about whether Uh, Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is fit to serve, uh, given not only her support of QAnon and some wacky theories about Jewish space uh, lasers, but also um, comments indicating approval for the execution of certain Democratic leaders, including Nancy Pelosi, to say nothing of the school shooting question, which he basically said at one point that all school shootings uh, are staged, which has been Something of a source of outrage here in Connecticut, uh, the home, unfortunately, of of the Sandy Hook shooting. So let's hear how that exchange went.
0: Uh, First of all, the people of her district elected her, and that should mean a lot. Uh, They elected her, and she's going to run for reelection, and she'll be accountable for what she said and her actions. Uh, And then, given her history, is she fit to serve? I'm not going to answer that question as to whether she's fit to serve because she believes in something that that everybody else does not accept. I reject that. Uh, But she's going to stand for reelection. I don't think we ought to punish people uh, from a disciplinary standpoint, a party standpoint, because uh, they think something a little bit different.
1: Something a little bit different. So, uh, Eric Bullard, tease this apart. And is this a place where the press needs to be more aggressive or more dismissive?
2: I'm glad Martha Raddatz pressed uh, Asa Hutchinson on that. Um, I I tweeted over the weekend, every Republican who appears on TV must be asked that question. Uh, His question really went to the heart of today's Republican Party. I mean, for four years, reporters uh, pressed Republicans, frankly, for two years, the press pressed Republicans about Trump's, you know, unstable behavior, his erratic behavior, his racist behavior. The second two years, they kind of got bored of it and stopped asking them, and, and Republicans didn't really have to answer for much of anything. Uh, the, the, this, this green situation is 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 almost as pressing, and the Republican Party, as Asa Hutchinson says, "Well, I'm not going to answer that question. It's not up to me. It's up to the voters." Um, this is a this is, I mean, if we just want to talk about uh, t- um, Marjorie Taylor Green real quick, I mean, this is an a- this is an absolute crisis. For the Republican Party, it's not really being treated that way. The coverage is, well, you know, her past social social media posts. You know, when she ran for Congress, the headlines were she might be a supporter of QAnon. She is, as we now know, thanks to some good reporting from CNN, from Media Matters, which went back and and dug out her old um, diatribes. She is 1,000% QAnon, and that's why she's not apologizing. You know, in the past, when the press dug up embarrassing, controversial statements, a politician would put out a statement. Well, you know, that's misconstrued. I don't think that anymore, et cetera, et cetera. She she hasn't apologized for anything because she is a member of this cult. Therefore, she she would never dream. It would never occur to her to apologize for any of this. She believes it. Yeah, she's, so, le, she's
1: less they, accurately a supporter of QAnon and more oh accurate, and more accurately a season ticket holder to she QAnon. Is,
2: look, I mean, CNN had a great um, special last night. They had two, actually, one on misinformation, one on QAnon. Uh, this is a cult. This is brainwashing. The press needs to really find better language. Conspiracy theory makes it seem like slightly quirky. There's a chance it might be accurate. Look, she's, she she doesn't think 9-11 happened. She doesn't think a plane hit the Pentagon. She, as you said, she doesn't think those school shootings happened. There's never been a member of Congress who has who has espoused these things. GOP and Asa Hutchinson says, well, she's up for re-election. She's 12 days into her first term. Are you kidding me? The right. Republican it, Party is just going to sit around for the so, next, what is that, you know, a uh, hundred weeks and, yeah. and just listen to this? Uh, terroristic threats that she makes. So, so
1: and here in Connecticut is uh, uh, because of Sandy Hook. It's also sure. a, a point of some pain that she's on an education committee too. It just uh. doesn't really. So, but let me just for the sake of discussion. Um yeah. For the sake of discussion, and at the risk of sounding like the Asa Hutchinson of the press, uh, let me just posit this. Uh, Well, I mean, it does appear as though there will be some kind of internal battle within the Republican Party over Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, Politico is reporting even that in Georgia, they're very worried that she's going to be the face of the whole ticket, and and they're just going to get a stamp of conspiracy theory and extremism. And then there's also going to be a kind of a reverse version of that fight about Liz Liz Cheney, you know, and and Mm -hmm. the that she's uh, a traitor to the cause kind of on the other end of the Republican continuum. So, I mean, if I were the Asa Hutchinson of the press, and maybe I am, uh, I might say, so th- th- let them have their fights and we'll cover oh, yeah, the fights. Yeah. And, and that's our job, right? We'll cover their fights. It's, we don't have yeah. a bigger job than that. So what, what you, what's your response?
2: Well, you, you mentioned you, re- you read my newsletter. So, you know, I've written about this a lot. This mm-hmm. this the, the Beltway Press. Loves to present this idea that the Republican Party, particularly in the Trump era, is coming unglued. There's a there's an internal civil war. There's going to be a reckoning. Uh, you know these honorable men and women in the Republican Party can't sleep at night thinking about what Trump is doing. Uh, you know his madness. And and spoiler, there is no reckoning. There is no internal civil war. A uh, hundred plus. Members of the Republican House signed on to that lawsuit when Trump was trying to overturn the election in favor of essentially overturning an election. Uh, You know, 45 senators we know are are likely going to vote no against impeachment. So my point is, Marjorie Taylor Greene, there's some whispering about, you know, it's creating this real crisis within the Republican Party. I I, I think the press likes that narrative because it makes it seem like the Republican Party is being adult and responsible. I see almost no evidence that it is creating any kind of internal crisis for the Republican party speak, you know, minority leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy said his office said last week, he's going to have quote a conversation with Marjorie Taylor green. Oh, okay. Uh, that that's, that's, I guess that's a start. That seems pretty comical in terms of the ladder of, of seriousness on this whole thing. So I would just caution people when they read that, uh, you know, uh, that there's there's this turmoil and this, there's this tumult and the Republican Party is, you know, wringing its hands about Marjorie Taylor Greene because they have a, a terroristic cult member in, in the House caucus. I don't see any evidence that there's any tumult. And, and this is the Republican Party. The reason Kevin McCarthy is going to have a conversation is because he knows QAnon is, is 30% of the Republican Party right now. And and the Republican Party's hands are tied. So uh, I, I think we're going to watch this unfold. I'm always skeptical when the press says, you know, Republicans are going to do the right thing eventually.
1: Mm-hmm. The... Um... We might as well sort of fold in some stuff that the press is doing that that maybe could be helpful or corrective. I'm not sure. I don't know whether you've had time to and I haven't quite finished it myself yet. It's pretty long. Uh, the 77 days piece, which The New York Times right, has right. dropped with a multi byline a- analysis kind of day by day, step by step through this process uh, of trying to undermine the results of, of an election. I, I don't know. No, Does that pass any of your tests for what you'd like to see the media doing?
2: Uh, yes and no. Yes, it's a great piece. Um, again, it's, it's just an exhaustive look at what Trump tried to do for 77 days. Unequivocally, he was trying to overthrow a, president, a, a free and fair election. Unequivocally, he was trying to insert himself as some sort of autocratic ruler for an undetermined amount of time. Unequivocally, it helps from all kinds of uh, supposedly serious and influential Republicans. Um, it's the type of thing really only the New York Times can do in terms of the resources and the insight. The downside um, is I, I I think the press needs to be a little more reflective. Um, during that 77 days, I was kind of pulling out my hair wondering why the press wasn't taking this slow motion coup seriously. Mm. Uh, and and the, an example I pointed to many times is in uh, late December, the New York Times reported that there was this deranged White House meeting with Trump, um, Sidney Powell, uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Mike Michael Flynn, and they they discussed martial law. They mm-hmm. discussed could could Trump institute martial law in order to have the military seize voting machines in Georgia and other states. The New York Times ran that page on that story on page twenty eight. Mm-hmm. The New York Times did not think it would stop the press's news that the president and might, might have been the most frightening White House meeting in, in our 240 year history, discussed possibly seizing voting machines. Um, so I wrote, I wrote for months about you know how the media wasn't just, it, it was a slow motion coup up until the insurrection of January 6th. And it was, and if you go back to the very beginning, um, there was talk about, well, you know, the, the kind of conventional wisdom in the Beltway was, well, he's just, you know, Trump's just blowing off steam. Nothing's going to come of this. Uh, you know, he's got to process this. Um, what's, there was a faint, there was now infamous quote from a Republican operative to political. What's the downside mm-hmm. uh, to kind of playing along with this? And, and obviously we now know the downside. So um, that, that piece that the Times did is, is really instructive and hopefully it'll be read in, in terms of a history, but the press failed for two or three months after the election uh, because the press doesn't like to talk about what a radical, dangerous entity the Republican Party has become, doesn't like to talk about a huge portion of the Republican Party over the winter signed on to the idea of throwing out millions of valid votes because they didn't like the election results. Um, the, the press loves the idea that the Republican Party is still this center right entity. It's a mainstream player. Um, it's filled with lots of serious uh, people. But if you look at the record, it's hard. It's hard. It becomes harder and harder to prop that idea. up.
1: So we're going to grab a quick break. We're talking to Eric Bowler. You should be getting his uh, newsletter press run. I do. Um, And when we come back, I'd like to just sort of build on that a little bit and maybe just talk about what would it look like if the press did, as you suggest, or or stopped doing what you just described? Uh, What would the press's coverage be like if it acknowledged that painful reality? But let's take a very, very quick break and we'll be back to talk about that.
2: trying to read my sunday times it costs a nickel and 12 dimes i bought a late saturday night i've almost finished but not quite it weighed a ton it seemed to me that each one of them must take a tree to make and also i should thank it takes about a gallon of ink right off the bat it's section one who i where, how and what got done
0: how...
1: So we're back. We're talking to Eric Bollert, uh, press critic. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you that the state of the Republican Party right now seems to be like a big chunk of people who believe in dangerous, untrue, and destructive to the democracy things. And then another big group of people who don't believe those things, but also don't believe in doing anything about the people who do believe those things. And then this sort of tiny Romney-Murkowski group of people who kind of, you know, are still grounded in the more or less the old give and take of politics. But how does the press change its coverage? How does journalism change what it does to reflect that and to continue to hold all these people accountable without risking sounding like a broken record.
2: Yeah. Well, they, they have to blow up the old guidelines and protocol. Look, it's been the the modern era of of political journalism to call it 50 years or whatever. I mean, it has been a very simple formula. You know, you, you go out, you cover both sides, you get quotes from both sides. Democrats and Republicans are mere opposites. They're they're the same people, just on other sides of the aisle. We have center left Democrats in this country. We have center right Republicans in this country. All of them are, you know, you start from the premise they're all good, serious people working on Capitol Hill. They have their policy differences, and you cover the process. And yes, in more recent years, you cover that process like a sport, and you kind of lose sight of what the actual importance of policy is, and and how it affects Americans, and the press has gotten way too interested in the in the inside. But with the Trump era, all of that imploded. But the, what I say is Trump is the most radical player in American politics in terms of the power he amassed. And the press changed almost nothing, maybe until the very end in terms of how it covered Trump. Meaning we have this radical new player arrive on the scene and, and the Beltway Press just covered him I mean, there were days during the Trump insanity and and the and the hate speech. You would think Mitt Romney were president. You would think John McCain were president from the coverage. You know, it's just uh, there there was no serious change. And now it's gotten to the point, as you point out, the, a large portion of of the Republican Party a is just not in favor of free and fair elections. You know, they 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 lost, and now as the Times reported this weekend, over a hundred bills introduced at state legislations around the country to restrict voting. How do you cover a party that openly now runs on voter suppression? How do you cover a party that no longer is interested in having as many people vote as possible? And that's just the simple straightforward stuff. The press has been beat up for half a century about having a liberal media bias. Uh, It's it's there's a billion dollar echo machine in in the beltway in terms of Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and the Internet that pounds the press every day from that perspective that everyone is aware (laughs) of the career price that can be paid if you get tagged as having a liberal media bias. So there's an incentive for the press to cling to that tradition of both sides. Let's cover the process. Let's pretend everyone is a good faith player. That just does not represent the Republican Party today. I mean, if that insurrection didn't didn't prove that, uh, then people just aren't paying attention. But again, they they there's a, there's a total reluctance to break up this norm, this mold. But it, because it has been very successful and very lucrative for the Beltway press for decades.
1: And you know, I mean, I feel like I'm asking you to cure an incurable disease talking about yeah. this. But I I, I mean. You start thinking about means to various ends, and I mean the truth is, if the Washington Post and the New York Times and mm. name three or four other mainstream legacy press organizations really went after uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and really kind of held her up uh, and, and and also pressed Republican politicians really hard on why they're not doing anything about this, first yeah. of all, she. You know, she's already raising a hell of a lot of money off of this kind of thing. You know, I mean, I don't think she'd get any less popular with the people who really like her. And that's a little bit of the problem. Every time the press carves out its mission a little bit, you know, what Jay Rosen would call asymmetrically, you know, the more asymmetrical we get, the more a whole group of people decide not to pay any attention to us. (laughs) Um, and, And it actually seems to help some of the people that we feel need to be exposed for what they are.
2: I, th- I think a simple solution or a simple first step is just language, right? We talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene, terroristic, you know, those should be in the headlines. I mean, we went four years up, you know, CNN up until maybe the last three weeks of Trump's presidency, just not calling him a liar. Why would you not put that in a headline? The, the press, as I've said many times, tore up the thesaurus for four years inventing new ways, falsehoods, exaggerations, uh, why, you know, he's a he, he is and was a congenital liar. There was a collective, across the board decision in, in newsrooms not to call a liar a liar. People say, Well, it doesn't matter, he wasn't going to stop lying. It does matter because it, it changes the national conversation. If the New York Times and CNN and Washington Post for years in headlines accurately had just been talking about, you know, Trump you know, telling lies about foreign policy, if we had had a serious news coverage about, you know, the state of his mental health and, and mental health experts were quoted regularly in terms of what that meant for the country to have a questionably st- unstable person, you know, and, and, the th- and burning through the thesaurus, I mean, not calling him a racist, you know, racially tinged, you know, aggrieved culture. It, 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 it was a problem and, a, and it was a conscious problem and, and it was a problem they created uh, because again, they didn't really want to tell the truth about him, and and now we're seeing, we're we're seeing the consequences of that. Um, so there are simple things, and if you you're, if you're just accurate in your language, that's a first big step. But I understand your other point about you know once you attack these people, the 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 pool of the pool of Republicans who hear that message is 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 getting smaller. That unfortunately, I
1: don't have the answer for it. I mean, it does seem maybe journalism is in the process of restructuring itself a, a bit. And, and you know, I mean, people like me are going to read Heather Cox Richardson's uh, newsletter and a bunch of other yeah. people are going to listen to Ben Shapiro. And then there's this job that used to be in the middle somewhere, you know, that right. was there was a, a kind well, of refereeing job. And I'm just wondering whether you think that job can exist, given how solidly people have run out to the extremes.
2: Well, it it goes back to our, our discussion about the Republican Party. Right. The Republican Party has sort of blown up that job because the job, that job, the important job you described was there was still a large portion of the country that had agreed facts. And within the last five years or 10 years and it certainly has been accelerated in the last three the Republican Party, not just as leaders, but members of Congress have decided, nope, we're, that this, we're not playing this game anymore. We do not agree on central facts. And so they just ran for the exits and that left the press, which traditionally dealt with, as you say, the fact checking and, 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 and you know, uh, the, the real world, they looked around and, and, and there's no Republicans left in the room. <laughs> and So what are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to do? Uh, when one of our two major political parties no longer really supports free and fair elections, no longer supports, um, you know, a factual conversation on really any significant policy discussion, we have members of Congress who who still think, you know, the coronavirus is like the flu uh, and we're a year into this. It's a huge challenge for the press, but it was a challenge created by the conservative movement, which kind of threw up its hands and, and, as I said, headed for the exits and left that room, that factually based, room where that discussion has taken place for most of this country's history. Only one side left in that room, and that is a problem, and that is a problem for the press. They're still pretending Republicans are in that room, but you and I both know it's pretty empty in there.
1: So we're going to have to stop there. We're talking to Eric Bullard from Press Run, uh, and we're going to have some people come on and ask you to support public media, speaking of uh, groups that are in the middle trying to provide a fact-checking context and some refereeing. Uh, but a- as we go out, we're going to kind of pull in Eric Bullard because uh, at the end of his newsletter, no, no matter how saturnine uh, and acid tongued he has been, he almost invariably uh, presents us with a terrific piece of music to listen to, possibly a product of his Rolling Stone days. So we're going to go out uh, with uh, Haley Witters uh, and fill in my cup. You want to say something? You got about 30 seconds. You want to set up this clip for us?
2: Oh, yeah. I just love this. Uh, well, people read, know I have a soft spot for country music. I always have. Uh, and I love this new single by her. And I'm, I'm such a sucker for a last call country song single. And this one starts with a chorus, and I fell in love with it right away. So I wanted to share it with everyone at Press Run. All
1: right. Eric, fun to uh, spend time with you after reading your stuff all these years. Uh, and let's go out with one of your favorites.
0: Yeah bartender, it ain't the bartender
1: We are back. Uh, We're about to go to Ross Garber in just a second. Make sure you're unmuted, Ross. Uh, But before we do that, first of all, I want to thank you. If you did make a pledge just now, we really need people to, well, we don't need people. We want people to pledge during our show. It helps our show, obviously, if people care enough while we're on the air to make a pledge. I know you don't want to miss anything either, so. Um, I get that too. So, but anyway, we do try to pledge, you know, say before two o'clock. Um, and I also want to thank Kat Pastor. She's uh, here in the studio, there in the studio. Uh, She's the technical producer making the whole thing happen. You also just heard her during the pledge break, maybe. Uh, so she does everything basically except the job of Betsy Kaplan, who is the senior producer of this show and the producer of this particular episode. I'm lucky to have both of them on my team. And let's get going here. It is time to talk to Ross Garber, uh, the principal at the Garber Group, specializing in political investigations and impeachment. Uh, he's a legal analyst for CEN and he teaches at Tulane Law School. He's been on our show many times. He, too, is a homeboy. Uh, so good to have uh, him back on the air. Hi, Ross.
0: Hey, it's good to be with you. See, I, but I, I learned from the last guest that we can pick our own music yeah, and I wish I knew that in advance. Cause yeah,
1: I, well, from I, now on, I, just tell Betsy what would you have picked.
0: Um so I, I saw a documentary this weekend on the Avett Brothers oh, yeah, uh, that Judd Apatow did, yeah. which was terrific. And so the the country music that came into this segment reminded me that I've been listening to the Avett Brothers nonstop right. uh, all weekend. So
1: that's um, yeah, probably what I do. Years and years ago they were actually on on our show and they were quite or one of them anyway it was quite charming. Uh and I think it was Jermaine Abbott, but I'm not sure. Uh and uh, I would have guessed lawyers, guns, and money for you, but um So let's talk a little bit about this situation. Uh, You have been an impeachment lawyer. I'm guessing (laughs) it didn't really – it might have occurred to you to quit on the eve of impeachment, but I'm pretty sure you never did that. Um, President Trump now finds himself uh, needing to regroup his defense team after five of them on rather sharp notice disappeared. What what should we conclude about that?
0: Well, I mean, you know, we've heard rumors and, you know, I've heard from a variety of people – you know, either involved or tangentially involved and everybody's sort of got their own story. But it seems like the narrative that's emerging is that there was a a disagreement between the president and the legal team about the appropriate approach to take, with the president wanting to re-argue again about whether the election was stolen and the lawyers Uh, disinclined and ultimately refusing to do that. And then there was this notion that, you know, there kind of wasn't chemistry between the president and the lawyers, too, which apparently is important to the president.
1: Well, you know, I mean, to that first point, though, um, uh, that, you know, I mean, this notion that he wants to repeat this argument, he wants to have it be perhaps even the fulcrum of his defense, that, yes, the election, they cheated, they cheated, the election was stolen from him. It's hard for me to see. And we can we can sort of backtrack from here and talk about sort of even the basis of the impeachment and whether you think uh, it has much traction at all. But it's it's hard for me to understand how that could be a defense. In other words, if you think the election was stolen from you, uh, you go to court, which is what he did 60 plus times. Uh, there's things you can do if you think the election is stolen from you. Uh, there's two branches of government at your disposal and he made the best possible use he could or the worst possible use he could of each of those branches and exhausted those remedies. How would that even be a useful defense at this point
0: all right colin you 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 are now being burdened by your rationality (laughs) and your kind of common sense uh and none of that is what's going on here so i what, what i think is going on is the president is coming into this process and he sees that he's going to be acquitted i think that's what he perceives that there's no that there's no risk really in this proceeding. And so once you take that as a given, then all right, uh, if you're him, then, you know, what can I get out of it? And so I think what he's trying to get out of it is, is not an acquittal because he thinks that's a foregone conclusion. It's all right. Well, now this is a forum for him to kind of do the spin that he's been trying to do. And we've seen him do for months, which is that this was a stolen election. I think that's what he views from his point of view, this trial is about. So words, um, yeah. about, about advancing the ability for him to advance this narrative.
1: This is, you know, there's so many ways in which impeachment is such a bizarre process um, because it really is neither fish nor fowl. the fowl, although it resembles a little of both. I mean, for example, I, I know at one point, one of the people trying to help President Trump find legal representation was Lindsey Graham. Well, Lindsey Graham's on the quote-unquote jury, you know, which is typically not what jurors do. They don't try to help the defendant uh, find a, a good lawyer here. The, the jury is also made up of potential victims of the crime. If, in fact, we are going to to, to say that uh, the storming of the Capitol uh, as incited by President Trump, well, it was a crime, obviously, and, and they could have been much more significant victims of it had they been kind of in the line of fire, so to speak. It just seems like such a strange thing to have a jury that has somebody helping the defendant find a lawyer and a jury that includes people who m- might really feel genuinely injured by the crime itself.
0: It, well it, it's so strange that in the Clinton impeachment trial one of the house managers referred to the senators as a jury which drew an objection from one of the Senators I think it was Senator Harkin who said wait a minute I object we are not a jury and the Chief Justice actually sustained the objection and mm-hmm. admonished the house managers to not refer to the Senate as a jury it it yeah, it, it it really doesn't bear that much resemblance to what we think of as a jury. You know, like you said, uh, you know, you, you don't have uh, you normally have members of a jury going out and finding defense counsel. You don't see members of a jury on TV. You don't see members of a jury consulting uh, with the defense or the prosecution. We we have we've heard reports that the house managers are actually in in, in consultation with the. Uh, Senate Democrats about the kind of the the presentation of evidence. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of this amalgam of legal concepts, and also uh, raw politics. And they're so rare that, you know, there really aren't that many firm rules that, you know, guide anybody in the process. So,
1: um yeah, it's not so much a trial as it is a series of things that would be a basis for mistrial in, in ordinary court situations. So I, I know your stances on these things well enough that I, I think I can anticipate your answer to this. But so another thing that typically doesn't happen is that juries don't take a vote before the whole process about whether the process is constitutional or not, whether there's any basis, any standing, any ripeness. Those are all things judges have to disc- decide. But to whatever extent the Senate is a jury, they've done that. We We know that we know what that vote is. And I I find myself wondering, well, is is that game set match in terms of outcome? Or is there a way in which a senator who voted to say that, no, this isn't really how impeachment is supposed to be used, shouldn't be used on a former official, uh, that 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 same senator could find him or herself voting for conviction on
0: some other basis? Yeah. So you know first the, the the senate you know yeah it's you know it was ruled technically improper to refer to them as a jury but you know they're they're both jury and, and judge and and this notion of making a determination right at the beginning of a of a case about jurisdiction that actually is common in the judicial system that's how it would be handled you know kind of go through the whole you know trial and then decide jurisdiction. You decide that up front. So I think that that process sort of does look a bit like we we normally see. Although typically it would be of,
1: John Roberts who would be doing that, except that John Roberts has essentially said
0: he's not going to make rulings like that. Well, except, you know, the, the presiding officer in in an impeachment trial isn't technically the judge. It's just mm-hmm. the presiding officer, like the presiding officer of the Senate has, has historically had very, very, very little power and authority to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, former Chief Justice Rehnquist, you know, made clear that he was he he was you know taking a, a very very minor role. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts continued with that. So you know, the the power and 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 the Senate as a whole can overrule mm. the you know, even when the Chief Justice is the presiding officer. So that, you know, it's really the Senate has that has this power. And you know, in terms of whether you know we can look at what has happened as game set match, I would say. Uh, it is a very clear indication of what is very 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 likely to happen except and if the president were my client this is what i'd i'd you know tell him is is look this is politics and a lot of strange stuff can happen and you want to be prepared for strange stuff to happen number one and number two you know there is a there are all these companion criminal cases and criminal investigations going on. And so I would say yes, it is it is very likely kind of we know how it's going to play out. but I can also imagine uh, additional facts coming out uh, that if 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 that's the case, then they throw things into turmoil. I mean you know one of the things we have very little insight into is what the president was doing. As the Capitol was being raided. We don't know that much about that. We also don't know anything about any potential coordination between Team Trump and any of the folks who actually got violent on on the sixth. Now, assuming that there was no coordination. Okay. But what if, you know, what you can you can head down these, you know, these roads and say, you know, what if this is true? What if this is true? And, and you know, The New York Times did some great reporting today, mm-hmm. lending some, you know, kind of additional color to all this. One could imagine facts that actually do upend the process,
1: except that. I mean, I agree. Uh, and I, I thought the 77 uh, days piece was terrific. But it's unlikely that new reporting or new facts coming to light in any particular way would change the question of whether or not a non-sitting president uh I mean, in other words if they stick with that rationale that he's just no longer president so the language uh of impeachment uh, as explicated in the constitution doesn't really make any sense here i mean there isn't going to be a new fact that changes that i guess what you're saying is it might introduce such urgency that they set that consideration aside
0: well it but it could also uh, change what they're inclined to do with that consideration. So, if I believe if I'm a if I'm a senator and I believe I have no jurisdiction over a former president, I have three options. One is when when we get to to vote guilty or not guilty, I can say, well, you know, my colleagues, the majority has said that there is jurisdiction, which is going to happen mm-hmm. here. The, the Democratic majority is going to say that there is jurisdiction. So the question is, what are those Republicans going to do? One is I could say, well, my colleagues, the Senate as a whole has said this jurisdiction. So I got to vote up or down on guilt based on the merits. That's one. Second option is I continue to believe that there is no jurisdiction. And so I vote not guilty based on jurisdiction. Third option is I say, you know what? I don't believe there's jurisdiction at all. And so I just sit the thing out. I, I, I've, uh, I abstain from voting. And that would be important because the two-thirds that's necessary to convict is two-thirds of those present and voting. Mm. So if you've got senators who abstain, then that reduces the denominator, which reduces the number it takes to convict. And in the previous time, the only time in American history, the only time where this issue has come up, the trial of a, of a former official, the Belknap case, which you know all about. Senators took all three of those positions, different senators took different, different positions. Most of them who said there was no, no jurisdiction, they voted not guilty. Most of them did, but a couple of them actually voted guilty. They said, you know, based on the merits, I'm voting guilty. And one of them abstained. So, uh, so that dynamic could come into play.
1: We're going to have to stop there, Ross Garber. But yes, uh, if particularly if you are a likely not guilty vote, and instead you'd refuse to become part of the quorum or decline to become part of the quorum, you change the math drastically. Ross Garber is principal uh, at the Garber Group, specializing in political investigations and impeachment. If you're getting impeached, call Ross immediately. Don't wait. Don't uh, wait. And meanwhile. Uh, Meanwhile, we're going to ask you to support the station, support what we do, support this show in particular. So when these nice people talk to you, I think it's going to be Kat and Jeff again. But uh, when these nice people talk to you about supporting us, please do it's, like Do it during our time slot, too. We, we get extra brownie points. And we like brownie points.